Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the Shared Ireland podcast series. So today we're going to try something different. We're not going to be discussing our normal subject of politics. Today we're going to have a conversation with a very interesting gentleman from Derry City called Declan McLaughlin. Declan is a full-time worker in an addiction centre in Derry City. He's also a singer and songwriter, but more about that later. Um, I suppose before we start this today, the reason why we're having this conversation is because in any new shared Ireland that we're trying to envisage, um, it's important that all aspects of life and society are talked about. That includes people that have addiction issues, that are homeless, that have mental health problems, uh, the suicide rate here. So, you know, we, we must... I guess explore every avenue, have a conversation about every aspect of society because everyone deserves the same voice and we all should be entitled to the same rights. But before we get into the podcast today, I'm going to play you a little bit of Declan's music uh, just to whet your appetite for hopefully things to come. with great pleasure that we introduce a man from Derry City called Declan McLaughlin. Declan, welcome to the Shared Ireland podcast and thanks for agreeing to take part. Thanks for having me on, Neil. Declan, I, I suppose i give a brief introduction there of what you do. So in your own kind of words, what's the name of the organising organisation that you work for and what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Uh, oh, the... the where I work, it's a place called the House for Wales. For a lot of people in Derry and the kind of North West, they would know of it, they would know about it because it was started uh, in the early 70s as a kind of community response to a kind of growing issue around uh, men and alcohol. There was, around about that time, there had been a number of kind of older men who were drinking in the streets, who were sleeping in the streets. So what happened was, there was a number when the bog, when the old bog was being kind of redeveloped, there was a number of houses at one side, uh, and local people kind of got together and put beds and, and kind of fixed the places up for these men to kind of stay in. Mm-hmm. So as the kind of years went on, it kind of became a wee bit more official and a wee bit more, uh, you know, uh, not a controlled environment, but it became definitely more. Uh, what's the word? Uh, more directed at the, the kind of man's needs and a profet- and it became more professional, mm-hmm. I think is what I'm trying to say. So what it, what it is now at the moment is it's a 24-bed uh, harm reduction unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I say harm reduction, what we do is we treat it's, it's, it's primarily men with addiction issues, 
Now, mainly alcohol, but we would do we would have people up with gambling issues or drug issues as well. Uh, and the way that we kind of come at it is we don't tell people to stop. You know, there's a lot of facility facilities out there that are prepared to help people, but they must first stop. Where we can kind of come at it from the angle of some people can't stop and they still need help and support. So that's that's what we do. What we try to do is we try to create an environment where people make healthy decisions for themselves. So what we do is with inside of a scheme itself, the men are allowed to consume alcohol, but it's under they have a they have what's called an alcohol agreement. And as part of that agreement they're allowed to drink so much per hour. So it's not a case of them getting absolutely blocked out of their head or high out of their head early in the morning. What this is, is this allows them to be able to consume enough alcohol for their body, because a lot of them would have the physical addiction for their bodies to be able to, be able to gain a, a, a working level. And so, so you're doing it under a controlled environment? Yeah, some that, people are, is that fair? Some people are that badly damaged that, you know, that, that alcohol and drugs is the only relief that they get. So, like, again... What I say, what we're trying to do is we're trying to meet people where they're at, not where we want them to be at. So, so would it be fair to say that you're doing it on a controlled environment, Declan? Oh yes, yes, it's very, very, very controlled environment. Uh, but again, it's it's about it's about a healthy environment for the men mm-hmm. because a lot of these people would come from fairly unstable backgrounds, or if you know anything about kind of street life. It's not a good place mentally or physically. With unsafe of the environment that we create, it's very, very safe for the man. Could that be somewhat potentially controversial, Declan? And I guess I'm asking this question from somebody that knows nothing about it, but, you know, as you rightfully said there, that a lot of places won't maybe let you in unless you're clean for so many days or weeks. You know, but could it be said that you're nearly enabling people by allowing them and affording them the opportunity to continue um, their drug of choice? Right. What I would do there is I would ask the question back to you, is, is the other way working? You know, if you look at the amount of people who are on the streets, if you look at the amount of people whose lives have been destroyed with alcohol, that attitude, although it's the kind of safe way to go, but again, you're not dealing with the problem. What we try to do is create an environment on where people start to address, you know, what they what they need, you know, that they look at what, you know, what has happened to them in their lives that has made them take, you know, this kind of decision or, or that puts them in an environment where they abuse alcohol or drugs or something else you know there's usually something has happened to people before they you know before they get that people aren't born alcoholics they're not born drug addicts they're not born gamblers that's something that we learn as we kind of grow up uh and and like i say when you look at some of the studies you know like dairy has a very very healthy attitude to like there's very very like we don't have a homeless problem with dairy now there's people on the homeless list but there's very there's nobody sleeping on the streets because people here you know because of the, the housing problem that happened you know for the 30s the 40s the 50s and the 60s you know people are really tuned on it. so i think it's a case of when you give people a semi-healthy environment then they can start taking control of their lives again you know and i think we have a system where you know you know a lot, a lot of the people that i work with are 
regular business, they're dealing with the police, they're dealing with social workers, they're dealing with, you know, and these people, they, they don't treat them like that. And don't get me wrong, I'm saying they do their jobs, but you need to start with a human being. You need to treat somebody like who's a human, who's an adult, who has made decisions. And what we're saying to people is, look, you have made these decisions yourself. If you could, if you could have another way, then what would those decisions be? And then let them start from that from that position. Definitely. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an expert on addictions, but to me, it's about you meet people where they're at. You know, not where you expect them to be. You know, I think a lot of the times we kind of drive, we drive through study centres or we walk through study centres, and you'll see somebody in a doorway with a bottle, or you'll see, you know, a couple of men in an alleyway, and you kind of go, ah, oh, that's sad, and then you just kind of quickly move on. You don't realise that the lives that those people have led, or you know, where they're at. Declan, you, you you just touched on something that I was going to ask you there. Is that you know? I have on, on, you know, a regular occasions, as I'm sure so of all our listeners, you know, you'd be walking through a town or city, you see somebody sitting there, you, you obviously feel sorry for them. And, and I've often heard people saying to me, but maybe you can clarify this, that you shouldn't potentially give people money because they will only go and use that money then to buy their drug of choice. You know, is there any truth in that, or what? What is a way that you would advise people to, to I suppose, approach somebody if they did want to do something kind for somebody on the streets? Uh, you know, a lot of the times it's not about the money. It's it's about the recognition that somebody sees you. You know, for people who live on the street, the very fact that somebody will stop and even just saying hello, how are you? can be worth more than £10 or a fiver or the change out of your pocket. Just to engage with somebody as a human being. You know, don't look down on them. Don't pity them. Just, you know, how's, you know, how are you getting on? You know, you know uh, again, treating people like they're humans is where it starts. That's how the healing can begin. You, you said a very important word there. Treating people like humans and I suppose giving them a bit of respect the same amount of respect that you and i are affording each other now that you would do with yes. anybody on a day-to-day basis i think i think i think yes. for, you know that that uh, if there's anything i'm personally going to take away from this conversation it's that one aspect treat people like humans and again you know like the, the whole notion of the show was about a shared island and you know it's not just about sharing you know, between Catholics and Protestants or the North and the South, it's also about sharing it, you know, with people with disabilities, people with addictions, you know, people with learning disabilities. There's, you know, we get caught up in this kind of idea that there's two communities here. There's hundreds of communities here. You know, there's ethnic minorities, there's people we learn, you know, all of these, there's musicians, you know, there's all these other groups that I think that we kind of steamroll over. And this kind of because that's we kind of see it as a fast. You know, as, as long as the Catholics and the Protestants are happy, then we're we're all we're all good. But there's so many other people there, and I think it's it's, it's selfish on our part just to look at it through the prism of just two communities when there's so many more, more other people who we have to engage with and make them feel part of any kind of process as well. Excellent, and I echo, and so does the entire shared Ireland team. Every word that you're only after saying there, um, that can tell me this, you know. Is there, I suppose, I was going to ask you, is there a typical 
um, reason why somebody ends up on the street. Obviously, as I've thought about that while I was speaking, that's a ridiculous question. You know, but like, I suppose what I'm really trying to ask you is, why do people ultimately, from your experience, end up on the street? Uh, right, well, there's probably a list of, re- you know, you have family breakdowns, you have bad decisions, you have addiction, you have, you know, just, just housing issues themselves. You know, a lot of young people find themselves in a position where they no longer get on with their parents, or there's too many people in the house, or the environment in which they live in is unhealthy, and they move, they, 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 go, they go on to the streets they love because they feel that it's safer there than it is inside of whatever home environment. Now, if you're a teenager and you're thinking to yourself, living in the streets is a better decision than living in the home, then things must be pretty at home for you to, for you to make that. Nobody is on the street by choice, or very, very few people are on the street by choice. Most of the people are there because they have been left out or they have done things themselves. Uh, but there's never just a, 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 a series of events that take people to, to, to that kind of position. Uh, I, I, I suppose the, this conversation that we're having is one of the very few ones that I haven't really done any research on or notes on. And, and that was a deliberate um, act on my behalf because I spoke to you briefly last week and, and we spoke for over an hour and, and I personally thought the conversation was fascinating. So so I suppose, you know, I thought I would just wing this one. Um, and like what, what how many beds do you, do you have in your in your facility and um how long would somebody enter your premises for right well it has a tw- it's a 24 bed unit uh, and the place will be full most of the time uh the Sorry, what was, the, what was the other part of the question? No, I, I suppose, how many people can I, I, you know, how, how long would, would somebody typically stay? Uh, no, it it's supposed to be a short-stay hostel, mm-hmm. but because of the stuff that you're dealing with, that's never the case. You know, some of the people that come on to us, you know, don't have independent loving skills. You know, they can't cook for themselves or their, you know, their ability to look after themselves or their health isn't good. So you put them under this kind of environment and you try to give them the skills that they need to go back out in the community. Now, people do do it. People, you know, on a regular basis, will have people who come in who are, you know, down on their luck uh, and they'll eventually move back out into the community. You know, that's the success stories. That's what you want. You want people moving back out to become a healthy part of the community in which they live in. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of goal. But for a lot of people, you know, the damage is done. They can't deal with the, they, they can't overcome the addiction. So you can't just throw them people out and just say, look, well, we can't, can't help you. So, so, you, so you're saying that, that some of your residents could stay indefinitely? Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. Uh, a lot of you know, some of the times it would be palliative care. You know, a lot. You know, on a regular basis, we have men dying. You know, a lot of the people, by the time that they get to us, there's a lot of you know, kind of physical damage. The alcohol or drugs have caused uh, you know enough damage that they and that's that's a case that you're you're helping people die with with dignity. And I suppose that you know, while while you're looking after people's addiction, you know, I suppose unfortunately 
does suicide creep into this as well at times? or mental health but what you usually find is see somebody who has an addiction because the addiction takes over that's what keeps them alive you know you you know me or you might think you know you look at somebody who lives in the street and you go if i was living like that i would probably end my own life yes you know if i was living in that situation i don't know if i could do that i would end my own life but for a lot of people it is either that that environment has become normalized or the addiction is that strong that the only thing that they think about is the booze or the drugs. And when you get up, like if, when you're loving, when you, when you're loving that life, when you get up first thing in the morning, your first thought is, where am I getting a drink out of? Mm-hmm. And trying to get drunk as quickly as possible. So what we try to do is create an environment where they don't have to make those decisions, where they can get up and they don't have to you know, reach for a bottle of QC. They don't have to, you know, where, where, where we, what we do, as we're saying them, look, your medication they take, give your breakfast, you know, do that, and then we'll give you, a, you know, there'll be a drink there. So that's about... And, and Declan, why, why is it that um, you kind of predominantly look after males only? Why not, you know, females and males? Well, there is another project in Derry that they're trying now at the moment to make... Like the, the kind of place that I work on is referred to as a wet hostel, mm-hmm. and they're trying now at the moment to get a wet hostel for women as well. Okay. Now I think there's only two. Now this is to my knowledge that there's only two wet wet hostels in the whole of the six counties. One is in Belfast and one is in Derry. Mm-hmm. I think that each of the health uh, boards have to provide this service. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there should be one. Every, you know, like honestly, see, I've been doing this this type of work a long time. This is the only way to help people is bring them into an environment where you treat them like human beings. You try to get their dignity back, and then you give them the support. Then they deal with you know to go to AA, mm-hmm. to get counselling, to come to you know so that they make the decision themselves to overcome the issues that they have to feel. Because you usually find that the alcohol. Is just with the cream that's lying on the top. There's, you know, there's physical abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse, you know, educational abuse. That's just what's usually happened in people's lives. You know, people just don't wake. You know, people aren't born alcoholics. I don't believe that. I don't think people are born drug addicts or gamblers. I think what happens is things happen to you throughout your life, and they take away your ability to be able to make healthy decisions. Declan, it's bound to be difficult for you. Because we're all human, and we, we can, yes. you know, particularly for you when you're interacting with people um, that have found themselves in this unfortunate position. You know, you as an individual, is it hard to come home at night, close your own door, and switch off? At times it is, but, like, you know, if you were to bring the woes of the world back to the house then maybe this isn't the type of job that you should be doing. Yes. You know, because, like, and, and it's one of the things that you learned early, early on, see when the door closes at work, you have to put it behind you. Now, that doesn't mean that I might be dealing with somebody during the day 
and they'll have told me something or something will have happened and it'll play through my mind or you know I might need to talk to somebody about something that have, something that has happened to me or something that I've been told but if you if you take it you, that, that's why people burn out yeah, I've absolutely. You know, some cyclists need the work. There is there there is a high percentage of, of burnout. You know, people get to a certain stage and they either hit the work that they're doing because of that they're taking it home all the time, mm-hmm. or they, you know, they they, they do themselves. It's, yeah. You know, it's a case of you'll find a lot of people inside of this line of work usually come out of families or have you know issues themselves around addictions, so they know. They know what they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. I hope you don't mind me asking this, but you know, had you ever, you know, um, an addiction issue yourself, or what made you gravitate towards this type of work, Dakram? Uh, look, I think you know, if you look at the island of Ireland, I don't think that there's a family anywhere that hasn't been touched with alcohol or drugs or gambling. You know, I think most of us. Yeah, well, well, like the, 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 the type of society that we, we live in, or used to live in anyway, uh, you know, alcohol was nearly celebrated and part and partial of sport, part and partial of everyday life. Like, you know, it was our culture. We're known all around the world for, for the drinking Irish. And, you know, it's, it's, it's okay saying that flippantly and having a laugh about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you hear somebody speak, uh, like yourself, that has to work and deal with people like this on a day-to-day basis. It's certainly no laughing matter. Uh, I, but I, don't, I don't think that we should take away from the fact, you know, the Irish are very social. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and I know that whole thing about, you know, somebody's born, we get drunk, somebody dies, we get drunk, somebody gets married, we get drunk. You know, every every situation, we usually, we, we reach for drink. Yeah. And I think that when that you know, for for a long time, that kind of behaviour was normalised, mm-hmm. and we're now seeing the consequences of it. Yeah. You know, a lot a lot of the kind of young men that I did with are young men who kind of grew up in the eighties and nineties when you know the super pubs and the alcohol pubs and all of that stuff became very prevalent. Yeah. That's because they were they were they were basically being told twenty. You know, every time they opened, every time they watched a football match, they were being blasted with alcohol. Every TV show from EastEnders, the soaps, they're being blasted with alcohol. Yeah. You know that that's it was during the nineties when that whole kind of that the alcohol companies really r- ramped it up mm-hmm. and you know normalized drinking in the house, normalized you know the super pubs, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, so we're kind of dealing with the consequences of that now, but I think there is a change, you know, like, I would be kind of, we would get reports and stuff like that about, you know, kind of what the alcohol and drug trends are and what drugs are about and what people are drinking. But, you you know, now at the moment, young people are drinking less than our generation did. They're taking less drugs than our generation did. Now, there's a very small population of them that are doing more. Mm-hmm. And because the alcohol... That, you know, when we were growing up, you'll probably remember this. The first, the first drink that you ever had was usually a can, and you were holding your nose, <laughs> and, and you were kind of forcing yourself to drink. It was like a rite of passage, you know. They kind of that you were drinking it, and then during the nineties, these alcohol pops, which were it was alcohol that was designed for teenagers. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the alcohol companies deliberately went after that market. What they wanted to do was get as much alcohol and as small a bottle as possible and sell it. You know, you you could go from drinking Fanta Wandy to whatever the alcohol was with alcohol in it. So the alcohol companies very specifically designed alcohol for that age group, and we're now dealing with the consequences of it. Yeah. But you yeah. know, and that, but like I say, I think there's a lot more. I think young people now are a wee bit more tuned in yeah. to the damage that it does to themselves. You know, young people are a wee bit more health conscious. They're a wee bit more conscious about their own mental health, uh, and they're a wee bit more driven in regards to going to university and doing all of those things. For, I came from a I came from a generation where that wasn't really the job. Tell me this. Um I, I know speaking till you off air, you mentioned that if somebody comes in to your facility that you monitor their consumption of alcohol. So basically yes. they're allowed to drink for what is it is it an hour or what what way does it work? Well, I'll kind of give you the, run, the the way that the place works is somebody would uh, somebody will be referred to the project and what we will do then is there would be uh, they would be assessed on their mobility. Generally, that's the only thing. As long as they can walk and they can kind of look after themselves, you know, they can them we would we would take them on. But the way that it works is they buy their own alcohol. We have a room that they're allowed to drink in. And what happens is they buy the alcohol, they hand the alcohol in at the counter, and it's all recorded. And what happens is they then have an alcohol agreement where they're allowed to drink so much per hour. Mm-hmm. And what we say to people is, you know, if somebody comes out and they says, I want to drink a bottle of vodka every hour, we would be going, well, you can't really do that because if you drink a vodka, you know, if you drink a bottle of vodka every hour, you're going to soil yourself. You're not going to be able to take your medication. You're not going to be able to do A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. Here's what we'll do. Is why don't you take it down to you get a double every hour and we'll start with that and see how you get on. Mm-hmm. So what we try to do is you know, say to people, look, we're not telling you to stop, but what we want you to do is learn how to manage it mm-hmm. in a way that it's not been so destructive on yourself, your family and the community around you. Declan, to I suppose some your experience up uh, with working in this environment, what do we and I say a collective we that means me, you know, my 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 Aye. friend, my our politicians. What do we as a society need to do in order to help uh, you and as a carer? And what do we need to do to help these poor people? Well, I think maybe using the term "poor people" as you know that that's we're kind of locking down on people. Yes, you know, there's. I accept you that. would be surprised at, at how many people who are success, you know, the amount of people who are functioning alcoholics or functioning drug addicts or, you know, or people with, with gambling issues. Uh, it's only a very, very small percentage of people that you, that, you know, that I would deal with or that you see that are living on the streets or who, who an addiction has taken them over that threshold and the, you know, the other society. You know the people that we kind of look down, where you know that we refer to them as the poor people, or the you know the drunk people, or the addicts and stuff like that. Uh, you know how we deal with addiction. I don't know. I really, really don't know. You know, to, to me and my job, what I do as I like I say, I just try to treat people with respect, treat them like human beings, uh, and 
I think maybe that that's what you do. We just I freaking kind of learn to treat people like human beings. You know, it means then that kids don't get broken, at homes don't get broken, that people grow up in an environment that's kind of loving and nourishing. Uh, I think that, that that's how we that's how we fix society in general. Uh, but in regards to you know, there's people that are far better educated than me who are trying to figure that one out. Well, well, Declan, just as uh, before we go off this subject, um, I suppose on behalf of myself and the Shared Iron team, and I'm assuming that I'll be speaking for everybody that's listening to this podcast, thank you, first of all, as an individual. Um, I accept you get paid for what you're doing, but still, yes. uh, still, there's other lines of work that I'm sure wouldn't be as as emotionally draining, but equally wouldn't be as rewarding, I'm sure, either. Um, so, listen, you're doing a fantastic job, and I sincerely mean that, and um, keep up the good work, and hopefully we'll have you on again, and we can discuss this particular uh, subject in, in maybe more detail after COVID is over. Which brings yeah. me on to your your other love in life, I, I'm... I, I think is a good way of putting it. Um, now, now, you used to get paid for it, but unfortunately, due to COVID, with all the bars and entertainment venues um, not open, and, and that is singing, Declan. You're, you're, a, yes, you're, you're, you're a musician, and you're a singer and songwriter. And, and you jokingly told me off-air that um, you, you kind of don't do other people's covers because you weren't um, good enough. I think that's the word you said. So, so you decided to write your own music. <laughs> so so will, will I take it from that that anybody that I uh, hear in the future doing covers are proper singers and people that write their own music aren't proper singers? It depends what you're writing. Declan, um, I'm just going to introduce um, one of your songs here and um, we'll let our listeners hear 15 or 20 seconds of one of your songs, sure. Okay. I started this song about 1984 and finished it at half 11 last night. Fantastic, Declan. Um, so what what kind of brought you into music? Was it something that maybe your father or mother did, or wh- when did you find that you had a, a talent for for writing songs and singing? Well, I, I grew up. My father was a musician. My father was a bass player, and uh, so I grew up in a house where there was a lot of music. My mother done a bit of singing as well, kind of country and traditional stuff. So it's one of those, you know, if my dad had been a joiner, I would have probably ended up a chappy. But my dad was a bass player and he, was a ba- he organized bands and stuff like that. So as I was a teenager, there was always kind of musical equipment about the house. So I kind of absorbed that environment. And then I think I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a great football player. So the only other way to become a, a babe magnet was to pick up a guitar. Right. <laughs> and, and how did that work out for you? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing all right. 
Okay, I think... I'd probably have put part of that conversation, but we should. No, but I think as, you know, as a young person growing up in Derry, and there has always been a great tradition of music here, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the standard of music in Derry is very, very high. Certainly. You know, for a number of reasons, you know, the kind of unemployment and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and, you know, it was always seen as another way of, 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 of making a living. But the kind of during the 80s, uh, I very much had that kind of, you know, the punk ethos of do it yourself, you know, and it doesn't really, like, like, I know we joke about it, you know, I really wasn't skilled enough to play other people's music, so I started just writing my own, <laughs> but to me it was also a way of, I wanted to voice what was going on around us, because I didn't hear anybody else, like when I was growing up there during the 80s, it was like all of the bands, was, you couldn't throw a stick into the air without hitting the helicopter, and nobody was mentioning it. You know, except the politicians. So I was going, look, this is something that we need to kind of, we need, you know, for me, myself, as a young man growing up, it was a, it was a way of me kind of voicing and going, look, this is what's going on well, here. Would, would, it fair, army, would it be fair to say that that most of your, your self-penned songs are, are kind of an observation on day-to-day life? Yes, it would be kind of very much kind of social realism. Right. You know, I don't, I'm not, I, I, like I, I do write kind of love songs and stuff like that, but I, I get, you know, people singing about themselves, I kind of get fed up. You know, I want the, like I come from the kind of school of songwriting that's about telling a story. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Irish are good at it, you know, between our poetry and our music, yeah. that you tell a story, you know, you take something like uh, like, uh the White Rover, you know, it tells you a story, there's a start, a middle, and an end, and there's a tension in the middle of it. That's the kind of songs that I like, and that's what I have done. You know, over the years, I've kind of honed my skills to be able to do that. You know, you, you take something, you know, that's a very, very, can be just, you know, like, for example, one of the songs of the last, my last album was called The Path of Most Resistance, and all of the songs on it are about people who have taken the hard route to anything you know there's a lot of prison songs on it one of the songs is called shadows and it's about sex workers prostitutes and limerick and one of them had been killed and this other girl was holding a photograph and if you remember back in the days when people used to have photographs the photograph was folded but you could see that this this person the, the, the person in the photograph meant that much there that she was carrying this photograph about with her all the time and that's that, that was the initial thing that drew me to it, that I thought, you know, here's somebody that loved somebody that much that they're carrying this photograph about with them. So that's what it came as, that, that, that was the business of the song. But the song is the story. It's not just, you know, a, a love song, you know, ah, somebody loves me here, I love somebody. Well, that kind of stuff was fine. What was the name of that song again, Dak? The song's called Shadows. Shadows, right. And just again for, well, the benefit of our listeners, we'll, we'll just insert a little bit of that song here now, sure. Yep. fascinating off-air about um, Guinness was launching yes. harp in America 
and all of a sudden you found one of your songs being used in an advertisement by Guinness. So tell us about that. Yes. The full story is, is we had a friend who'd worked in a bar in New York in a bar called Rocky Sullivan's. A friend of ours called Liam Ellis, right? Liam was a barman. And in the bar, if anybody knows Rocky Sullivan's in New York, it was a, it was a chancy joint, but it had a great jukebox. And they had, we, I was in a wee band during the 80s called the Screaming Band Lads. Mm-hmm. And we were a kind of folky punk band. And we had made CDs. But because of the stuff, you know, because we were singing about helicopters, people getting arrested and people glue stuff on them, you know, this kind of stuff, we were never ever going to get any kind of recognition here because of the way that the, 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 the record industry is here. Mm-hmm. But so we put out a wee CD for sales and the CD was on the jukebox in Rocky Sullivan's. Mm-hmm. This guy who owned a record label, Went down to the bar one day by absolute chance, and Liam, who was working in the bar, was playing the jukebox. The guy says to him, says, who's that? Liam was, oh, they're friends of mine from Derry. They have a wee band called the Screaming Band Lutz. And the guy says, how would I see them? Mm-hmm. And he says, well, they're, they're playing in Derry this weekend. This guy was called Clinton Mackay Cox, and he owned a record label called Brass Booty. And I, you know, he left the bar, went to JFK, booked a flight to Dublin, we, we, we a page of notes that Liam had written to him. Now, this was in the days before mobile, when everybody had a mobile phone. And Liam had written out to him, you know, get the bus, you know, get to Dublin, get to Derry, get out to Derry, go to, go to San Dino's bar and ask for Declan McLaughlin. So this was, I mean... This is like, this, a, this is like a story out of a Hollywood film. Here. <laughs> Without all the good-looking people. <laughs> he ended up becoming... And he he found us and like he ended up he, he come into he come into one of the bars and he says I'm looking for Deflon McLaughlin I'm screaming Ben Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! You know, like, at, a, at a time where Yanks didn't show up and there he asked him for anything. <laughs> so anyway, he kind of he, he funded us to make another CD and we had kind of thought the band sound had changed and you know politics was changing and stuff like that. So we changed the name of the band to the whole tribe sings. And we got a, tr- a, a, a trumpet player from Belfast. They joined us and stuff like that. So this guy, McKay, gave us a couple of pounds. They make a CD. We recorded a song called Happy. And Gillis heard the song and decided that they wanted to use it for their ad campaign in America. They were launching Heart Lager.
and our song was being played all over America. So at the point, like this shows you how naive we were. We just went like, we're going to take that money and we're going to move to we're going to move to America because they're playing our music on the radio. Yes. So we set sail, and for some reason we ended up at Chapel Hill in North Carolina, right. and we moved. We stayed there for a while, and then we moved to a place called Bloomfield in Connecticut, mm-hmm. and we were there for a few years, and then. I kind of got September after September 11, like everything changed, yeah. you know, to the uh, you know to the music industry. Everything just kind of went. Well, well, come, 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 You know, I'm not saying that you didn't make it, but you didn't make it. <laughs> what, what, what would you do different if you had the same opportunity again? Ah, uh, absolutely nothing. <laughs> okay. Absolutely nothing. Honestly, God, we had like. The, the band, we were all kind of work class fellas from here and there in Belfast. Like, we didn't, we never ever thought that we would get that far. We never ever thought that we would be playing. Like, like we played, we played, you know, CBGBs in New York, played there. We played the Mercury Lounge in New York. We played, we played the 930 Club in Washington. We played the Kennedy Center. We played the Ruts in Boston. It's like we played all of the kind of the, the, the great venues that you know any band that, that would mm-hmm. want to go and play. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like you know I got more I got much more out of it, out of it than I ever imagined a would. Yeah. You know I'm working class from the bog. You know what I mean? Yeah, For me yeah. to end up in the middle of Washington, jumping about with people dancing to music, to me was always what's going on going on here. Yeah. Uh, it's called winning. As well as that, music is always, to, to me, I think it's, and I would say this for a lot of musicians, we use it for our mental health. Yes. You know, music is like meditation. I would say I use this, you know, see anybody that's doing yoga, I would say, see when I'm playing and writing music, I'm probably using the same part of my soul or the same part of my brain as somebody that, that, that's doing that. You, 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 that's that's fascinating. I, I find um, you saying that, Declan. So, so based on that, over this past year, obviously you haven't, like many others, been afforded the opportunity to to play your trade. So, so how has that affected you as as Declan McLaughlin mentally? Never mind financially. Uh, well, just as this whole thing started, I was in the process of recording my new album, and. Uh, like I say, you know, the gigs stopped. But the thing about see musicians, musicians are durable. You know, we just kind of we go right. This is what we have to do. We move on to it. You know, like a lot of stuff went from the pubs to online. A lot of people, you know, like I think it's going to be very, very difficult for the music industry the way that we knew it before to come back again after this. This is all over. Mm-hmm. You know, the days of us jumping up and down in a sweaty club. You know, the DJ. I think it's going to be about a time. Now, it will come back, but I think it's going to be about a time before that happens. And musicians really have got it up the teeth, I think, in regards. Because, as, as I often say to people, you know, people go and see a band and they'll see five people on the stage. See, see those five people on the stage? They're, oh, there's another 20 people behind You know, there's the people who are working on the bar, there's the people who are driving the equipment, people who are doing the lights, people doing the sound, people selling tickets, people selling t-shirts. There's so much of an industry. And those people have been completely forgot about. Yeah. And I think a lot of those people who have kind of went right at the start of this, they kind of realised this, this is going to be a long-term thing. So they have got their now taxi drivers or their, their delivery drivers or they're working for their Chinese, you know. And it's going to be hard 
for us to kind of get the momentum back up again to put the, the, the kind of live thing back on. Declan, where where can any of our listeners um, purchase or view any of your music? Uh, well, if you're looking YouTube, there's a lot of stuff on there of me on YouTube. There's Bandcamp, there's Spotify. But if you're looking to buy the stuff, go to Bandcamp, Declan McLaughlin. All, all our uh, listeners will be looking to buy it, Declan, you know, rightly. Like. <laughs> I know. is going to be a wash with my music from here on. <laughs> He's playing Tyrone. He's playing Tyrone. <laughs> No, no, we, 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 all, we all like to support um, our local artists. And, um, yeah, so, so um, what what do you say, Bandcamp? That, that's a Bandcamp, yeah, there's a site. Like, a lot of those kind of other sites, you know, like, uh, like uh, I'll not name them, but they kind of rob, they rob musicians where there's a, there's a site called Bandcamp that usually you're getting all of the money. You know what I mean? See, for most people, if you buy a CD online, you know, the artist is getting two or three pound of it. Yeah. Maybe sometimes not even that. Yeah. Where if you go through Bandcamp, the artist is getting most of the money. And that's what I would say to people. If you want to oh, buy it, please buy it, on, buy it on Bandcamp. Well, that, that, I'm really glad I asked that question because I didn't know that myself. Very good. And, and Declan, what, what, what kind of brought you into, I should have asked you this at the first segment, but what brought you into the whole addiction looking after people and you know what what was it dare i use the word attracted you to it well the house in the wales like I, to kind of give you some of my background was i grew up my, my mother was from a week my mother kind of grew up in the country and it's just called Ardmore, and my father was from the bog side now they got married in the late sixties at a time when there was like there was no the housing issue in Derry was really really bad as it was across the the, the, the six counties. We ended up moving to a place called New Bolton's. Yes. And being a Catholic family and a kind of loyalist Protestant housing estate at the time wasn't that healthy. So by the time nineteen eighty five come around, we had to move. We were kind of forced to move out of where where we loved, along with a number of other families. And I ended up living on the bog side, which to me was hell. You know what I mean? I had moved from somewhere where I was despised, and to somewhere where I was, you know, I was accepted. It was just as, as being a, a young fella, or a, you know, my religion no longer mattered. But the house in the Wales was always part of the bog side. Like I say, it started in the early seventies, and we all, you know, most families or most people in Derry would know of it because a family member has been through it or a friend has been through it. Uh, so it's kind of well established and it's respected and it's always been there and I have always been interested and in, you know like when I went to university I've done graphic design and I have never worked as a graphic designer in my life since I left yeah. because I have always put my energy into the community and which I love on because that to me is more rewarding you know I would do a lot of stuff along with the gas yard wall failure with the Bloody Sunday Justice campaign stuff that the issues that affect the area where I love that to me is more rewarding than, you know, knocking out computers or again fixing somebody's exhaust. Declan, what 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 do I have to do? What does anybody listening to this podcast has to do? And what what do our politicians need to do in order to, you know, make real change in this country? Oh, that's a big question. Uh, You know, the, the homeless issue is just, is, 
something that has, you know, has been forgotten about. You know, I think homelessness across the border, you know, because of what's happening in Dublin and Cork, has become more of a political hot potato. Up here, not so much so. I think, you know, mental health, there needs to be more support and services directed at mental health. Because a lot of the people who I would deal with are dealing with mental health issues primarily. You know, that's that, that's where the, the where it all begins. Uh, but in regards to, I, you know, I sometimes wonder, can the politicians help us? You know, we need to take responsibility for our own lives and stuff like that. I have kind of, to, to a large degree, have lost the belief that kind of politics can, you know, or, or maybe the politics here has just kind of lost its, its way, you know. I think now that, you know, it's more the fucking all they're doing selling tickets. And I, I, I don't mean, I know it's very, very hard to be a politician and I know it's very hard to work in politics and stuff like that, but I, I don't, the answer to the question is, I don't know. Listen, this is a stat that really scared me and probably I'm saying nothing new here, everybody will be aware of this, but there has more people taken their own lives due to suicide since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement than people lost their lives throughout the 25 or 30 years of the conflict. Now, for me, yes. that, that, that I honestly had to do a double take, I uh, had to reread it, how to kind of delve into it and research it. And like, unfortunately, them facts are right, Declan. And like, for yes. me, that's, that's an awful sad indictment on society. And this is a society that me, you, and I'm probably 90% of the people listening to this live in. And like, you know, yes. it, it's, it's, it's okay saying this, and I'm only after saying it, and I'm as guilty as anyone else here, by the way. It's just another stat, rolls off my lips, and you know i'll go about my day tomorrow but but like yeah. you know there, there has to be more we have to do more i don't know what it is you don't know what it is you only have to say on that or politicians and, and like you know we in the shared iron podcast uh interviewed politicians were fond of criticizing them at times and stuff like that but like, yeah. they're human beings like you and i as well and you know you know nobody has an answer and I suppose, you know, <laughs> I'll throw this question back to you. You know, like, w based on the field that you are working in through men's addiction, like, you know, you're probably better equipped to answer at least some part of this question than I am, at least. Or, or many of our politicians, for that matter. Uh, again, I kind of, and I don't want to be disparaging about politics or the political leaders that we have. But I sometimes think that because of, you know, that whole notion of there being two communities here, you know, and, 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 you know I, I kind of, people wheel this out. There's more than two communities here. You know, there's people, you know, there's people we learn in difficulties. There's, you know, there's gender issues. There's not just Catholics and Protestants. We are not. You know, there's not just these two communities, but and I think what we do is every time it comes around the elections, somebody rattles a puppet and we all run back under the trenches. You know, we kind of get to the point where we're go. You know, we become unhappy with the services that you know the political. I'll, I'll use the term the political system. 
know, they take that out again, you know, the kind of red or green or the DUP in Sinn Féin. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens is we get to a point where we become really unhealthy or unhappy with what we're seeing, you know, in regards to the way that the, the health trusts are run or the way that education is delivered. And, you know, so we start asking these questions. And then when it comes around to the elections, they rattle the old sectarian bucket. We all run back into the trenches again and vote exactly the same way mm-hmm. that we did to mm-hmm. So we don't get any change. And I think what we need to do is we need to start with inside of whatever community that you live in, you need to start expecting your politicians to do more, for, you know, to, to address the issues that you're bringing to them. You know, because I, I just, and I, you know, I, I was very, very heavily politically involved for, for you know, large parts of my life. And, um, and I wonder sometimes now, you know, that it just, was that time wasted? You know, was it just all we were doing was selling tickets? You know, I just kind of, um, um, like I say, I know how hard it is to work, you know, at a local level with politics. And I take my hat off to people who do do it because it's a very thankless task. Uh, but we just, we, we really need to up our game. And I think, too, what happens is we're letting, you know, the bankers off. We're letting the fucking landlords off. You know, the people who we should be holding the account for the state of the, you know, the system in which we live in, these people... They're stripping the assets out of the NHS. They're stripping the assets out of the house. They're, you know, they're, 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 they're going to come for education next. And because we're that caught up in our own, our own and, you know, sectarian uh, paperwork that we let these people off, and I think, you know, to, to a certain point, they're doing that deliberately. You know, it's not very hard for them to kind of, get them riled up and they'll vote whatever way we want them to vote. Declan, one, one, one of the, the reasons why this podcast was set up was to have a conversation about our shared future and where that might take yes. us. And I suppose, you know, we as a shared iron platform would be advocating a yes vote in any future border poll. Yes. But, you know, we're also realistic enough to know we have to start having in-depth conversations with civic society, academia, or politicians, people like yourself, you know, everybody deserves to have an opinion on on this matter. And, and, you know, the more that we talk to people, there's one thing that is coming across loud and clear. And that is, if you ask anybody, what is it that you want to see in any new dispensation? They'll say, a healthcare service that is free at the point of entry, but one that works. And I suppose, yes. that, you know, we, we're, we're, we're here in, in the six counties with an NHS that is free at the point of entry. But is it fit yes. for purpose? We then um, go into the Republic and we have got a healthcare system that is free for certain people, but not for certain people. And again, isn't properly funded, isn't properly staffed and isn't fit for purpose. So, you know, our vision here is to, you know, if we're going to have a new Ireland, we're, we're going to have to, you know, have a system that works for everyone, regardless of your bank balance, regardless of your status in society, regardless of, of, of your, you know, who you are, what you are. And, and I suppose the reason why I'm asking and interested to hear your, your take on this is you, you obviously, through your work, working in the men's addiction centre, would, would, would be dealing, I imagine, very closely 
with elements within the whole health service, whether it be mental health or, or hospitals. What What's your view on, I suppose, anything that I'm only after saying? Well, firstly, we live on an island where there's what, six, six and a half million people. If we cannot provide health care for six and a half million people, like let's face it, there's bus stops in London that more people pass through at fucking six o'clock on a Friday. If we can't provide health care for the people on this island, no matter what you know level of the society that you're on, there's something badly and wrong. You know, that we can't look after our own. You know, and I think like this is I, I have this conversation pretty regularly with, with people because with the whole thing about a united Ireland or a unit a new Ireland coming up, I want to talk to people to find out, you know, what how people find you know, think about it. And that's one of the things that people continually say. You know, I think if the, the health care service was as good in the, the Republic as it is up here, let me say up here. Like, I'm not taking away from the nurses and the doctors who fucking bust their chops trying to deliver this. See the service that we're given? It's a fucking disgrace that you have to wait six months, you know, to get cancer care, that you have to get... I, and I see it, you know, you know we be trying to phone doctors on a regular basis, and, you know, if you don't phone between 11.30 and 12, you'll not get an appointment. And you, you're on the phone, phone and phone and phone and phone, and you're not getting an appointment. Now, we do... Like that, we. I'm not educated. I don't have the the, the knowledge to be able to facilitate that change. But we need to do it. We need to be able to give people that knowledge so that as you grow older, you will be looked after. As you work, you will be looked after. Your children will be looked after. And I'm not saying that the nanny step type of way. It's just that like, I lived in America. I know people. And when you fall off the ladder in the states, there's nobody there to catch you. If you don't have a job, you are you're on the street. You know, people get sick and their whole life goes down the fucking drain because they're sick. Something that they have absolutely no control over. Uh, so I think you know, you know, if we want to talk about how we move the island forward, then we need to start with that kind of healthcare, the healthcare system that we're going to offer people. Uh, but it's a very healthy discussion. We need to have it. You know, we need, and we need to have it outside of the cloud of Catholics and Protestants. We need to have it, you know, so that we're talking about, you know, providing houses, providing healthcare, providing education for the citizens of this country. If we're going to build a new Ireland, it has to be about the citizens of this island and what they need to become better, stronger, healthier, more intelligent. You know, that's that's kind of what I, that's what I kind of hope that we're going to do. But again, sometimes I think. We'll rattle that old sectarian bucket and everybody ends up in the trenches again. Declan, you speak with a lot of passion and um, I, I genuinely can't disagree with much what you said there. Um, absolutely spot on. Declan, we're approaching an hour in here and what we're going to do is we're going to ask you to play our listeners out um, with a, one of your tracks here. And just again... Um, it would be wrong if I didn't um, ask you to um, remind our listeners where they can download your music once again. Right. Well, if you're looking for me, you can get me on. If you just go on the internet and type on Declan McLaughlin, okay. there's there's a couple of us, but I'm the best looking. <laughs> so <laughs> say that again. You're the best looking. I'm well, well, hey, I'm, I'm, t- I'm talking to you through Zoom here, and I can assure our listeners he's lying. 
Nothing. 